Hello and welcome to this Catechesis podcast from Christ Church Waco. I'm Father Lee Nelson, and uh, we are delving into the uh, bit of the Catechism on the Ten Commandments, uh, looking at the Second Commandment today. We're on page 95 of the Catechism, starting with question 274 on the Second Commandment. You'll remember that uh, the the Ten Commandments are uh, unique in Scripture because in the story of the Exodus, they are the commandments that are spoken audibly to the people from Mount Sinai. In Exodus 20 and also in Deuteronomy 5, these commandments are spoken to the people audibly, and I love the other word, awesomely. Um, In fact, it's so awesome that the people uh, beg Moses to tell God, please don't speak to us audibly anymore. We can't take it. And so these commandments are set apart from the rest of the law, not to mean that the rest of the law is unimportant, but simply that these commandments are special in that sense. And they have always been special. There are also the commandments that are written down on the tablets of the law, which are then put into the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is to be uh, an image of God with the people. And that's really uh, to say it, that the the Ark of the Covenant sums up the covenant. I will be my God, you will be my people. Um, It's it's God being with the people, being present with the people. And this is very important throughout Scripture because at some point uh, during the story of the Old Testament, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, in fact, passes out away from the people. We don't know where it went, but it was taken away. And it's in the New Testament narrative uh, that the the living presence of God comes back uh, to the people of Israel, uh, to the Jewish people, uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, And this is a very important thing to say, is that he um, comes not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to do what? To fulfill the law and the prophets. So with that, let us pray. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with your most gracious favor, and further us with your continual help, that in all our works, begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name, and finally, through your mercy, obtain everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I love that collect because it sums up how it is that we do good works as Christians. We don't do them by our own power or pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but how? Listen to that. Further us. Actually, go all the way. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with your most gracious favor and further us with your continual help that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name and finally through your mercy obtain everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The teaching of the church throughout the centuries has been that no one can do anything good at all or truly good without the help of God. Our works are begun, continued, and ended in God. Um, We've forgotten all about ends in our uh, society today. An end is not just something that we work towards, but actually something which draws us to itself. God is drawing his church to himself, and it is in this work and submission to uh, uh, his commandments uh, and asking for his help to fulfill them uh, that we are drawn to the end of those commandments, which is not simply um, to, uh, to work without an end, uh, but that our observance of these commandments actually has an end, uh, which is Jesus Christ himself. You may have uh, studied philosophy and studied this thing called deontological ethics. Um, and deontological ethics is basically this idea of you just, you just follow the rules, you figure out what the rules are, and then you just follow them, and that's it. 
But Christians don't have deontological ethics. Um, we have had smatterings of people who think that might be the best way to go, but it is not uh, what Holy Scripture teaches us. Holy Scripture teaches us that all things have their end, their perfect end, in Jesus Christ, in the vision of the Father. And so it is... Uh, in keeping his commandments by his power and by his grace uh, that we pursue Jesus Christ as the end of all things. And so that's a really important thing to keep in mind. I think I've known Christians through the years who think, I've got to do all of this by my own power and by my own wits, and that's the only way I can really do it. And that's not really true. That's not really the case. That's not what we Christians believe and teach. So let's begin with this uh, second commandment. You remember the first commandment is, uh, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. So question 274, what is the second commandment? The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Ancient and primitive people uh, across the board have had idols uh, throughout time. You remember that as the people of Israel come into the land of Canaan, the Canaanites have their gods. They have Baal and Ashtoreth. And uh, these are the twin fertility gods of the Canaanite people and also up and among the Assyrians as well. And the, these gods are uh, meant to be, uh, how should we put it? Um, the idea is that you sort of set the mood for these two and they uh, come together um, in a sexual way, and they, uh, they fulfill the Earth's uh, fertile ends. Um, so what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to uh, get a little mood lighting going in your house. You're supposed to have a little play with these idols to get them uh, to come together so that your crops can be fruitful, so that your uh, house can be fruitful, so that you can have more children, so that you can do all of these things. And, uh, and it's a very alluring and I would say a very, uh, a very racy kind of religion. Uh, many cultures have had things like this, and they usually tend to be something of a pantheistic story. In the Canaanites, it was that Baal, uh, the male god, impregnates Ashtoreth, and she brings forth, or Astarte, and she brings forth uh, the world out of her womb. She's always depicted as being pregnant. And uh, because the earth is brought forth from the womb of the goddess, the earth shares in her nature. Um, and there are many, many, many idols like this uh, in many cultures in those times. You would have many, many, many gods, and uh, they would all have their image, and uh, you would worship the image and worship uh, that likeness of the god. But the gods were always portrayed in human form first. They were always portrayed as human beings uh, or as animals, but usually as human beings. And this is, at the heart of it, the problem is that we make gods after our image rather than understanding us to be a people who are made in God's image. Not sharing in his nature, but distinct. And so this is the issue with pantheism, is that uh, we, uh, in pantheism, think of ourselves as sharing in the nature of God. Whereas as Christians, we believe that we partake of the divine nature, especially in the Eucharist, but we are further uh, being drawn into the nature of God. It's something that we participate in rather than being made in. Um, we're made in his image, but we do not, uh, 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 as creatures, share in his everlasting divinity. Um, so to carve these images that, so that you can worship them and bow down to them, and we'll say more about that as we go on, um, is, is the violation of the commandment here. 
Question 275, what does the second commandment mean? God's people are neither to make man-made images of God or of other gods, nor to make such images for the purpose of worshiping them. Um, the Christian tradition has always been a bit uh, well, quite uh, uh, concerned about especially depictions of the Father. Um, the understanding, and we'll talk about this as we go on, is that yes, we can depict Jesus Christ because he actually is the image of the invisible God in his person, uh, but that we, we, we're always a bit, uh, you know, the, sometimes the Father is depicted, but it's always a bit strange, always a bit kind of considering or concerning, and it should be. Um, these man-made images of God are often uh, tempt us. They tempt us to worship these images. Um, we are not to make images of other gods um, for the purposes of worshiping them. Um, this is not uh, typically normal in our culture, but in many cultures in the world, when you become a Christian, you have to get rid of all of your idols. And uh, it's, a, it's a very normal thing. For instance, when a Buddhist becomes a Christian, they, they have to get rid of uh, their images of the Buddha. Um, so this is, this is considered to be a very important part of what it means to become a Christian, and uh, throughout history it's been a very important part. Um, in the ancient church, uh, people who carved idols as a business could not uh, become Christians without getting a new line of work. Um, people who served in the cultic temples had to get new work. Um, in fact, uh, one of the reasons that Christians didn't serve in the military is they had to swear by the gods uh, their military oaths, and they couldn't do that as Christians. Question 276, how did Israel break the first two commandments? Israel neglected God's law, worshiped the gods of the nations around them, and brought images of these gods, or idols, into God's temple, thus cor corrupting his worship. We actually talked about this last Sunday, in, uh, on Sunday morning, that one of the faults of the priests and the elders of the people is that they allow, and the kings do this as well, they bring these foreign images into the temple. They bring the Baals, they bring the uh, what are called in scripture the Asherah poles, which are essentially very tall uh, phallic symbols, um, and they bring all of these gods into God's temple, and they thereby corrupt the worship of God. This is their really prime offense, and the prophets speak against this, and uh, if you read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you're always seeing this back and forth between the righteous king who, who clears the temple of all these foreign gods, and then the unrighteous son who brings them back. Um, but God's worship is corrupted in this way. And so the second commandment is as much a call to worship according to God's word and commandment um, as it is not to worship uh, foreign gods and images. Question 277, why do the nations make such images? Israel's neighbors worshiped and served false gods by means of idols, believing that they could manipulate these counterfeit gods for their own benefit. That's much of what we talked about earlier, is that these gods are not meant to be prayed to as uh, <clears throat> kind of uh, above all things and, and, um, and overseeing all creation. No, they, they, are, they are gods to be manipulated. And what we learn in scripture is that the God of all cannot be manipulated. Um, he is to be uh, prayed to. He is to be um, to worship, to be worshipped and adored. Um, but the counterfeit gods are much more uh, of a kind of uh, god that can be um, manipulated into doing various things. Um, and if you don't do the right things and you don't perform the right rituals, then it doesn't work out, and you will face uh, you will face pain and misery. Of course, one of the things that Jesus says about, uh, about, uh, about God himself is that, about the Father, is that um, he sends his reign on the just and the unjust alike. 
uh, that if we face uh, malice in creation, if we face disease, etc., it's not because we didn't worship in the right way. It's because all humans share this fate of sin uh, because we share in this uh, corrupted nature. But it's not that we didn't worship in this way or that. And if we, uh, if we have trouble with our crops or trouble with our business, it's not because God is coming to get us. And we have to say that and say that uh, quite often. Question 278, are all images wrong? No, God forbade the making of idols and the worship of images, yet commanded carvings and pictures for the tabernacle depicting creation. Christians are free to make images, including images of Jesus and the saints, as long as they do not worship them or use them superstitiously. Well, I want to say a great deal more about this because this is often one of the issues that uh, we have uh, for people that are uh, coming into Christ Church and who uh, experience our worship for the first time. And they say, golly, there are a lot of images on, on screens and images all over the place. And, and uh, some of our hallways are starting to fill up with all kinds of art. And uh, it's really a, an amazing and, and joyous thing. But they say, you know, I grew up in a tradition that didn't have images. I mean, we didn't have crosses with uh, bodies on them. We didn't have uh, uh, images like this one of the resurrection direction in the altar. Uh, we had no images. In fact, uh, I know some of you have said, when I was a kid growing up, we had stained glass windows, but they didn't have anything in them. Uh, they were just kind of decorative. And, and I get it. The, the reason for that is this uh, uh, concern that images will become uh, very dangerous, that they will become uh, a temptation to idolatry. And so uh, there's a concern of that. And I think, by and large, we should maintain that concern uh, because we want to be very careful that we don't worship uh, or use images uh, superstitiously. However, having said that, um, the church's teaching on images through the centuries has been this, that because in the person of Jesus Christ, God takes on the image of human flesh and human nature, uh, and because in Colossians, Paul says, he is the image, and in fact, in Greek, he says, he is the icon of the invisible God. We say, we say uh, something like this, and this is an important theological idea, and it, and it comes from something we mentioned earlier in the Catechism, which is that uh, for those people who saw Jesus, um, they didn't just see his human nature alone, they saw God in the flesh. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. It's a very important part of Christian orthodoxy that we don't simply believe you see one part or the other because this is to divide the natures in Christ, but you see the whole divine person in Christ. And so Christians believe from a very early, early time that uh, images were now, uh, in a sense, sanctified for our use, especially images of Jesus Christ, but also images of the saints as well. And, and the, what, what these images do is very different from that of an idol. How they operate is different. Um, they are meant to be uh, objects through which um, we enter into worship, um, images through which we see uh, the... Um, uh, through which we see all these things and see them well. I'm going to take a quick pause and hand some keys over and keep going. <laughs> um, but it's 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 to say that uh, that icons are uh, a way to to approach this uh, fleshliness um, that God has taken on in the person of the Son forever. Keep in mind as well, we've said this in previous catechesis sessions, that God takes on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and he never 
sets it down again. He remains the Son of God in both natures um, without being one being abstracted from the other. This is why we say, for instance, that um, we don't just say uh, that the human nature of God, the, of God the Son, died on the cross. What do we say? We say God the Son died on the cross. We say Jesus Christ died on the cross. We say that, uh, that, that he, he died on the cross. And we can even go so far as to say that God died on the cross. This is the same reason that we can say of Mary, for instance. Mary is the mother of God. If we say that she is only the mother of Jesus or Mary, the mother of his, uh, of his human nature, we've divided the natures in Christ. And this actually is, is uh, historically understood to be Nestorianism, although uh, Nestorians uh, don't actually embrace this. But historically, it's called Nestorianism. Uh, but that's, that's a bit of inside baseball for today. What I really want to, uh, to say today is that, um, that it is in the person of Christ that these images are uh, are redeemed in a sense. But we can also remember that throughout the Old Testament, uh, God does command the making of images, and they are uh, replete throughout the temple. Um, they become a very important part of, of Jewish worship. Um, if anything, you can simply say, well, you know, churches have never really, up until the Reformation, been bare. Uh, historically, uh, we've had uh, in the church issues with something called iconoclasm, which is this idea of we're going to break the images because the images are bad and, uh, and we don't want to have them. Historically, this actually coincides with Christianity's uh, uh, interactions with Islam. Uh, Islam, as you know, forbids the making of any image. Um, and so as not to defend, not to offend their Muslim neighbors. And by the way, Muslims, if you really want to understand Islam, Islam is a kind of Christian heresy. Um, uh, which means it is no longer Christian, but that's another thing for another time. Uh, and uh, and so uh, this this was rigorously defended by the church. Uh, this uh, this this act of making images, um, not only by John of Damascus, but also by the Seventh Ecumenical Council, um, which holds that these images um, are to be given honor and they are to be treated with honor. But let's let's move on. Question two seventy nine: Are all idols images? No. Anything to become an idol if I look to it for salvation from my sin or comfort amidst, amid my circumstances. If I place my ultimate hope in anything but God, it is an idol. Um, let me say a little bit about that. Um, I think we live in a really interesting time to sort of make some comment about this in our society. What is this that's going on in our society? Um, I will say, uh, you know, listen, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that when you go out in public, you know, or when you come to church, you should wear a mask. Why? Well, to love your neighbor, that's why. Because there's a commandment that outstrips all the others, and that is to love God and love your neighbor. And all of the law is summed up in those commandments. Um, but I would also say that on the other end of the spectrum, there is this temptation to treat our own health as an idol in itself, and to take rest and comfort in the midst of a tumultuous world in our own safety to the point where we become idolatrous of it, where we, we, we become, in a sense, frozen in our desire to maintain this thing. Um, we can also become idolatrous of our own freedom as well. Uh, many people throughout our society are saying, um, take away my freedom and, and you've essentially killed me. And, and the reality of it is that, that in Scripture, uh, freedom is not an ultimate end of man. Uh, to be free in Christ, to be free in the image of God for all eternity is our ultimate end. 
to be sure, but it's that we are freed up in love of God um, and not simply free to do whatever we please. And that is the image of Christian freedom that we ought to have. And anything else can become an idol. So what I want to say this morning, and, and I'll even say this too, you know, we often become very idolatrous of Christian worship itself by saying it must happen in this way and not that way, and it must be like this and not like that. And, and we become very, very, very pharisaical. And the worship in this way becomes the be-all, end-all. And, and it cannot be that for the Christian. So anything can become an idol, and I should, I should line them out as well. You know, we have so many things to, today. We, we may not put carved images up on our mantelpiece and worship them, but we have so many things that we worship. Um, we worship uh, talent. We worship skill. We worship uh, all manner of things. We worship especially uh, financial freedom, money. Um, we worship our homes. Um, we will make deep sacrifices for those things um, while we sort of hold back our worship. And the teaching of Scripture is that if you get worship right, everything else comes. Um, listen to Jesus when he says, Seek first the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so idolatry stands in the way of God's providence. Um, you'll remember that in the Old Testament, it was the people are wandering in the desert, um, and as they come out of Egypt, they are, uh, they are very concerned, right? How are we going to survive? What are we going to eat? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? And they start to, to remember the onions and the leeks and the fish in Egypt and how great it was. And even though they were slaves, they still had food to eat. And all they have out here is worthless food. And, you know, did you, did you come, you know, Moses, did you take us out here for lack of graves in Egypt? and they're just complaining right and left. And what we see is that they have not just simply idolized golden calves, but they've idolized their own comfort and their own security and all these other things. And what the law is directing them towards is to understand that they have no other end in life but God himself. And all the rest um, is, is, is an idol. Question 280, what does, the second, what does the second commandment teach you about hope? Now, let me, well, let's answer, the, let's answer the question first. It teaches me that my ultimate hope is in God alone, for he alone is God and he made me. I must not look for salvation and fulfillment in myself, another person, my wealth or occupation or status or any created thing. Only in God will I find perfect love and fulfillment. This goes along with what uh, we've just said. Uh, but think about this for a moment. You know, for many people, hope is this idea that, you know, life may be bad right now, but it's going to get better next year. Um, up until the Cubs won the World Series, which, yay Cubs, uh, you know, everybody would always say, well, there's always next year. And now that baseball season is, is uh, probably not going to happen, you know, we can say, well, there's always next year. Um, we, we tend to act like this. We tend to say, as, as long as it gets bad, and when it, when it gets bad, we tend to say, eh, you know, it'll get better. But this, my brothers and sisters, is not Christian hope. Um, Christian hope is referred to in Scripture as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Um, and I say that because uh, many people today are tossed about. Um, they are unstable. 
They feel that everything is uncertain and they're worried and they're scared and they're, they're tossed about from bit to bit. And even when, uh, when others are saying, uh, you know, oh, no, no, not me, I'm not scared, I'm brave, they're still so frustrated that, that it seems that hope is lost in them. Um, and so I want to focus in on this for a bit. What is Christian hope? Well, Christian hope is that uh, theological virtue, Paul calls it, uh, that you know, these three abide, faith, hope, and love. Hope is one of the classic uh, theological virtues for Christians, and it means when we say theological virtues, we don't mean simply that that it you know is describing God or that uh, that uh, they're about God or something like that. No, no, no. By saying they're theological, we mean that these three, faith, hope, and love, have God as their ultimate end. So for the Christian, the Christian hopes in God as the foundation upon which he or she lives their life. Um, uh, in fact, in, in the New Testament, there's great... Uh, scholarship on this as of late that, that simply says if we're looking for what hope is, hope is much more like proof. Hope is much more like evidence. Um, and so what we do as Christians is we put, we build all of our lives upon this foundation um, of what God has done in Jesus Christ and for those in the Old Testament, on, on what God had done in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, what God had done by making them a nation, and they put their hope in that. Um, although that, that Old Testament hope is a transitive hope, um, because, because the, the law is a kind of schoolmaster meant to lead them to Christ, as Paul puts it in uh, Galatians. But, but this is to say that, that the Christian, ought to, we ought to live our lives on this foundation of hope, because, because it's like, it's, it's like the evidence with which we uh, believe. Uh, and, and what happens is, and the reason that it's called an anchor by Paul, is that what does an anchor do? Well, an anchor holds a ship in place in harbor so that it doesn't get tossed about by the waves and thrown up on the rocks and shipwrecked. Um, and Paul uses this analogy very often because you know, he talks about those who've made a shipwreck of their faith. Well, how'd they do it? They've lost their anchor. Um, an anchor holds that ship straight up, holds it where it is, keeps it from being tossed against the rocks. And so uh, we, sh we should always be uh, introspective enough about this to understand, you know, when, when bad things happen to me, when difficult things happen to me, when suffering happens to me, do I get tossed around by it? Do I experience anxiety or do I experience peace? Do I experience steadfastness in prayer or steadfastness in, in my life? Or do I experience fear? Do I experience anxiety at a deep level? And, and, and listen, sometimes, and I'll say this from personal experience, sometimes that anxiety is not just uh, the kind of anxiety that people get, but it can be clinical and, and you ought to get checked out. Um, you ought to go to your doctor and say, oh, I, I can't sleep because of the anxiety that is upon me all the time. I want you to know that, that you should look to, you should look to a doctor to, to help you out in that. You should get some help, um, uh, get some counseling. Um, uh, but, but, but here, hope is being spoken of in a theological sense. So let's, let's look a little bit more deeply at this answer. My ultimate hope, meaning at the end of all things, my hope is in God alone, for he is God and he made me. Um, think about that for a moment. 
Um, when I make something, like I'm making this video right now, I'm making it for a purpose, right? I'm setting it in motion so that you can learn some things, right? Hopefully you'll learn something. But, but when God makes us, he sets us up to fulfill an end. He gives us that end. And so for the Christian, all of life's meaning is found in God alone. And when we try to pursue the meaning of other things, it is the very definition of idolatry because they're things that we have made. So I must not look for salvation and fulfillment in myself, another person. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? Like how many of you have, have uh, maybe in a romantic relationship said, oh, I love her so much. And then she breaks up with you and you're crushed and you're angry. And you shake your fist and you have trouble praying because you feel that, uh, that all the things that you hoped for for a relationship with is just tried up. Um, and and it's, it's all gone and you're angry about it. Um, maybe it's a friend um, that you put all your hope in and they, and they betray you. And, it, and it, it's, you know, listen, it, when, when a friend does that, it, it's representative of a kind of trauma that happens. Um, even your parents, your siblings can betray you at a very deep level, and betrayal is awful. But it doesn't mean that our hope ought not be found in God any less. Um, we can find salvation and fulfillment in wealth or status. Man, status can be more alluring than wealth even. You know, uh, where I fit within the ranks of society matters to me to the point where I'm willing to do things just to attain to that status. You know, I, I can't drive that car because it doesn't send the right, doesn't project the right image. I have to drive the, the Mercedes in order to, no offense if you drive a Mercedes, but, but I have to drive that so that I can have that good status that I want so that I can project the right image about myself and so that I can be valued for my status. And I would actually say uh, one of the things my, one of my great mentors as a priest said is you should never buy things for their status alone because they'll become an idol to you. It's one of the great reasons to buy something that's older, buy something that's used. Um, and we have so many great ways to do that these days. Um, because when it breaks or when it starts to get damaged or when anything like that happens, it won't make you afraid. It won't make you uh, 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 lose hope. But you'll say, yeah, it's a thing. Um, but man, when you, when you buy something new and it, and it gets broken two weeks later, you know, how does that make you feel? It's, it's just like awful. And sometimes it'll just consume you for a whole day. And that's a sign that it, that it it may have become an idol to you. Um, we certainly have this, that issue today with, with things like cell phones and computers and laptops. You know, we're far more excited to stare into that screen than we are to have a relationship with another person, let alone to pray. Only in God will I find perfect love and fulfillment. Question 281. How was Jesus tempted to break the first two commandments? Satan tempted Jesus to bow down and worship him, promising him an earthly kingdom without the pain of the cross. Instead, Jesus served and worshiped God faithfully and perfectly in all his life and calls us to do the same. 
Um, I would actually manage this a little bit, which is to say that actually in the temptations which Jesus faces in the wilderness by Satan, um, he's tempted to idolatry in all those forms, actually in all three ways. Remember, the first is that um, he's tempted to, uh, to turn rocks into stone. Remember that? What's, what's the idolatry there? Well, the idolatry is, the, is to have such command over the created order that he can solve global hunger, right? Listen, if you can turn rocks into bread, uh, you can solve one of the most pressing problems in all of human life, that of hunger. But even that, doing good for people can become an idol. We have to remember this. Well, he's taken up to the very pinnacle of the temple. Now, Satan takes him to the pinnacle and says, you know, jump down and let the angels catch you. And what does he say? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There's a kind of, of idolatry that comes in these false understandings of God himself. We, we think superstitiously, you know, I'm not going to fall because the angels will catch me. Finally, he's taken up into outer space, high above all creation. I like, to, I like to think of him as some sort of like, you know, uh, prototypical astronaut. You know, Satan just takes him up and he can see all the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan says, if you bow down to me and worship me, I will give you all these kingdoms. You'll have mastery over all of them. And of course, we know the, the funny inside joke, which is this, which is he's already king over all creation. Has been for a long, long time. But Satan wants him to, and he, he does struggle with this temptation, right? I mean, this, this is not some sort of fake temptation. It's a real temptation. To have everyone follow his will. To have everyone do it perfectly. There's a kind of idolatry that comes with having power over other people that can be alluring as you can possibly imagine. To have control over other people. Even to have control over your own children can be an idol that has to be broken down. So the Christian is to forsake all of this. Now, that doesn't mean don't try. Uh, it doesn't mean uh, don't keep your life in order. It means don't put them on the pedestal and worship them. You know, I, I'm sure you know people in your life who have such a cleaned up image, have such a beautiful glowing image, you know, the, the, the kind of people who take every year a picture on the beach wearing white shirts and white shorts and they have these you know immaculate white couches and I'm, I'm kidding but you know it, there's a kind of idolatry of the family even today we're saying no that's everything that we want well-behaved kids good-looking kids you know all of that that can become an idol as well and it and what happens often is it keeps us from prayer because we're so miffed we're so frustrated that our family doesn't do the things that we think we need to be able to do, and we become embarrassed, and we become shamed. All of, none of this is good, friends. The Christian has to abandon all of this desire to control and manipulate and, and, and fix things. And the idolatry of that power... I mean, this is one of the things we're seeing in our society today. I, I think that many people today would be hard-pressed if they were taken up into outer space and you know, see the kingdoms of the world and, you know, you'll have power over all of them if you bow down to be and worship them and you can solve all the problems. You can, you can legislate away racism. You can legislate away injustice. You can solve all the problems that are out there. I think there are people who would be hard-pressed to turn that down because the end of their human life has become simply this. 
human flourishing. And the Christian understanding is that human flourishing is only found in God himself. God is the end, right? The glory of God is the end. The chief end, as those old catechisms say, the chief end of man is the glory of God. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God for that. So what does Jesus do? He worships God perfectly. And, and this is, oh, such a wonderful um, image because, you know, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, that word for uh, perfect is, is telios, which actually means uh, grown up or, uh, or reaching its ultimate end, the telos. Um, so perfection, you know, Jesus says, you be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Do the thing that you were created to do, which is to worship God faithfully and perfectly. How do we do this? We can't. We have to surrender it to Jesus and ask him to make us a people like this. Um, that's the surefire way out of the idolatry is to ask God to help. How will idolatry affect you? Finally, question 282. If I worship and serve idols, I will become like them, empty and alienated from God, who alone can make me whole. This is the teaching of the prophets, particularly Jeremiah. Those who make them are like them. So I love the, the image of the prophets. I think it is Jeremiah. Um, you know, he, he envisions a man cutting down a tree, right? Cuts down the tree. He takes half the tree and he carves it into an idol. And then he takes the other half of the tree and he burns it for firewood. And he's sitting there laughing at the guy. Like, <laughs> you're such an idiot. And, and he is, he's an idiot, right? It's funny. Because what he's done is he's, he's worshipped one part of creation and he's burned the other. And it just shows how confused he is and how, how crippled he is by this poor understanding. He has become... Both like the part of the tree that gets burned and like the part of the tree that's worshipped as an idol. He has become as worthless as the idol itself. Here's the thing. You and I were created for eternal blessedness and glory in the vision of God. Not just in some faraway future, but now to experience communion with God. That's what we do in this church. That's what we do when we pray. And to do anything else, to worship any other thing, is to become like that worthless thing. So I implore you today, if, if there's any idolatry in your life, confess it. Ask God for something better. Because as long as that idol is there, you'll be empty. And you'll be alienated from God. You'll become disintegrated. Meaning not whole. What is an integer in math? Remember this? It's a whole number. It's not 1.2. It's not 1.75891010. You know, it's it's one. <laughs> one, two, three. An integrated person, not disintegrated. Whole. Um, my prayer for you today is that you would, you would come to know the idols in your life and throw them down. Throw them away. 
understanding what your chief end as a human being is. May Almighty God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.